Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn. This week, the president caused some confusion when he seemed to suggest that American troops in Syria would soon be coming home. You're inclined to pull the troops out? I want to get out. I want to bring our troops back home. I want to start rebuilding our nation. So uh, it's time. It's time. We were very successful against ISIS. We'll be successful against anybody militarily. But sometimes it's uh, time to come back home. And we're thinking about that very seriously. In what's becoming a Trump administration hallmark, these comments came while the commander of U.S. forces in the Middle East, U.S. Army General Joseph Votel, was arguing the opposite case. This is kind of the situation that we, uh, we find ourselves uh, uh, at here in, in Syria. Again, uh, a lot of very good military progress made over the, over, the, uh, over the last couple of years. But again, the hard part, I think, is in front of us. And that is stabilizing these areas, consolidating our gains, getting people back into their homes, uh, addressing the long-term issues of reconstruction and other things that will have to be done. And and this, of course, is uh, there is a a military role in this. The White House moved quickly to quash any doubts about U.S. involvement in Syria. But the statement they released on Wednesday left enough ambiguity to wonder what future U.S. plans were for the country. This week, we hear from Melissa Dalton, senior fellow in our international security program. You'll remember she spoke to us in February when she had just returned from Raqqa. She joins us this time to talk us through what's going on with the White House's Syria policy and what a way forward could be. Melissa, why don't we begin, if you could explain to us um, what's wrong with the president's suggestion that the US would pull out? ISIS is defeated? And is it as simple as ISIS is gone, let's pack up and go home? Right. Um, so delighted to join you uh, again on the on the podcast. Um, I think the, the key here is what we mean by defeat ISIS. Um, if it's a very narrow definition of eradicating ISIS's territorial control, um, the United States working with its coalition allies and partners has done a terrific job of pushing ISIS out of very key terrain in both Syria and Iraq. But the fight actually is not quite over yet. There is still active fighting against ISIS uh, down the Euphrates River Valley and along the Syria-Iraq border. So um, it's not quite complete yet in terms of the kinetic operations piece of of the campaign. Um, But if the mission really is to truly defeat ISIS, we need to think about, unpack that a bit um, in terms of what that actually means. What are the the drivers, the reasons why ISIS was able to, to grow in these areas to begin with? And is it really just about eliminating ISIS's territorial control of these areas? Right. It's almost like they've moved back in time to a to a point where ISIS are still dangerous. I mean, they're still you know, a terrorist organization, although they're not holding as much land. Exactly. And there are some very worrying indicators in uh, areas of, of Syria and Iraq uh, that they might be uh, switching back to their prior tactics of, of being an insurgency-based group um, in terms of trying to take advantage of, of gaps in, in governance and the, the credibility of some of the, the local councils and, and security organizations, police organizations that are trying to uh, stabilize 
stabilize some of these areas, there, there are some worrying indicators that, that ISIS is already uh, seeking to exploit um, some, of, some of those gaps. And uh, I mean, Syria is, in terms of U.S. involvement, it's not the same as Iraq and Afghanistan. It didn't have a big presence. It wasn't a year as long as, long as these other wars have been. So what kind of hole then is created um, should U.S. troops be pulled out? Right. So the the role of U.S. forces in in Syria have been to train, advise, and, and assist local security partners that that are working on the ground, uh, primarily focused on pushing back ISIS, eradicating its its territorial control. So, and that uh, primary assistance in the last couple of years has been to the Syrian Democratic Forces, an umbrella group um, that includes a constellation of both Kurdish fighters, uh, but also Arab and, and Turkmen. Uh, fighters. Um, and, and the U.S. has been working quite hard over the last few years with its partners to try to uh, right the balance of, of that complexion to make it not so Kurdish uh, uh, heavy, um, although much of the leadership is is still predominantly Kurdish. But but the main focus of, of the U.S. involvement has been uh, trying to enable and train and advise and assist uh, partners to take the lead in going after ISIS cells and, and pushing them out of this territory. And as that uh, effort has proceeded, also working with those groups to uh, stabilize areas of following ISIS's departure and um, then establishing linkages between local security groups and, and local councils in places like Manbij and places like Raqqa. That has been the, the primary focus um, in a much smaller footprint, um, only a, a little over 2,000 forces in, in Syria um, as compared to the very large um, hundreds of thousands of troops that the United States had at one point in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Of course, there are many belligerents in this conflict. Uh, just this week, we had representatives from uh, Iran, Syria, Russia, uh, Turkey. Uh, they met to discuss uh, a way forward uh, for Syria. Is the U.S. coordinating with that? And, and, and who is leading the way there right now? So that meeting uh, did not involve the, the United States. It's uh, basically an outgrowth of an effort that, that Russia has been pushing in parallel to the UN-backed uh, Geneva-based uh, discussions on politicals, uh, the Syria's political trajectory. Um, but this forum, if you will, of, of players has not included the United States. Um, and I think quite worryingly, because it's clear that these players uh, care more about the, the investments that they've made in Syria, about Syria's trajectory, and have shown a greater willingness to to put a stake in uh, defining the, the trajectory of, of Syria. Um, and I think the, the timing <laughs> of uh, the President Trump's announcement of the the intent to wind down U.S. involvement in Syria while there was this multilateral meeting occurring um, at the same time is a bit worrying in terms of the, the U.S. role, not only in Syria, but also possibly the greater region going forward. The, the White House did walk it back in the end. They did come out and it wasn't full-throated. It was a little bit of ambiguity still there. But so we, we still don't really know then what the stated policy is for what the White House wants to do here. 
Right. I mean, I think what we're seeing playing out is the the tensions that have existed in the, since the beginning in this administration between the America First policy agenda, which um, perhaps we're beginning to see uh, defined more concretely in terms of not wanting to have sustained uh, military engagements in, in foreign lands, uh, putting some very distinct uh, time-bound parameters perhaps around these, these types of interventions with more conv- contrasted with more conventional thinking among uh, former Secretary of State Tillerson, uh, Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, and uh, the outgoing National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, who have advocated for taking a more holistic approach, uh, thinking about not just the the narrow counterterrorism mission, but also um, what the follow-on effects uh, need to be and and commitment needs to be uh, to to ensure that we are not repeatedly conducting counterterrorism operations in in some of these places. And speaking of the follow-on, one aspect of the Syrian conflict that did not get, I suppose, as many headlines as the kind of confusion over over what to do with the troops is is this $200 million in stabilization aid from the State Department that's now frozen. Um, What's the effect of that and and what what should be the focus for um, stabilizing Syria from a U.S. perspective? Absolutely. So the the ability to really consolidate the security gains that have been hard fought uh, by Syrian partners, but also U.S. forces in, in Syria, really hinges on the stabilization piece that necessarily follows clearing terrorists out of an area. Who is going to pick up the pieces um, to reestablish essential services, uh, clear mines um, that are heavily riddled in places like Raqqa um, that were deliberately left by ISIS, um, clearing the streets of, of rubble. This is not the full-blown reconstruction that Syria desperately needs. Um, that is a whole other issue set. This is the immediate after effects of, of stabilization that need to occur. And so that State Department funding, it's a mere uh, $200 million dollars uh, that can go a long way in supporting uh, a very small team of technical experts the United States has deployed uh, civilian experts uh, that are within the U.S. military security bubble on the ground. So as a first order business, ensuring that U.S. forces remain in eastern and and northern Syria is important to provide the the ring of security around the stabilization effort. But uh, that stabilization stabilization effort cannot happen if not properly resourced. And so there is this looming question of how, again, going back to if the objective is to defeat ISIS, but we're not actually resourcing the critical piece that's going to prevent any sort of regrowth of of ISIS in in, uh, following the kinetic clearing operations. Um, Are we really accomplishing our objectives? And could we very well see ourselves back in Syria and and Western Iraq um, in another two years? And it's not just ISIS, right? There's plenty of other terrorist groups that have taken hold and are, are needing to be dealt with there. Yes, absolutely. I mean, because the the, the drivers of, of this conflict, uh, you know, in Syria, but also more broadly, some of the longstanding political issues in Iraq are really about Sunni grievances and, and the lack of connection between Sunni Arabs and, and their, their government. And until those broader political problems are addressed, uh, the, the conditions for um, groups like ISIS to take advantage of those 
those grievances are, are quite profound. Um, and so the United States needs to play some role in, in uh, enabling its partners to, to address at a local level um, some of these issues through better, credible local governance that's going to, to empower some of these Sunni voices. Um, otherwise, I, I do think that we are, are setting the stage for a potential regrowth of ISIS or like-minded groups. One, one point that came up this week as well with the president's comments uh, was the idea of, of working with allies more, putting them in the lead. Um, one of those allies was Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, how would that work in Syria? And, and is that wise considering how we've seen you know, Saudi Arabian military actions, say, in Yemen, not exactly having the desired effect? Look, I think that the the task in in Syria and Iraq is is not the United States' burden alone to to, to um, uphold. It's it's got to be a collective, allied, and partner effort. And so, I do think that there is a role for a partner like Saudi Arabia to play. But what is really needed is a multinational framework for approaching not only the counterterrorism piece, which we've had, but again, this this stabilization piece. And then there is the looming question of reconstruction down down the road. But could there be a useful role for, for Saudi Arabia to play? I, I think so. Uh, but we also have to think about what their incentives are to, to involve themselves, whether that's from a resourcing perspective, whether that's actually committing um, military or security forces into these areas. Um, if the political uncertainty is still there, if the United States is not helping to create the, the framework into which uh, that resource would be committed. Um, what incentives do, do the Saudis have when they are committed to to the ongoing operations in Yemen, um, which have been quite a draw on on them both politically uh, and economically as well as militarily? Um, how how does that all add up? And will Saudi Arabia be incentivized to play ball? And as as I think you were suggesting, um, we've seen earlier in the Syrian conflict that. Um, Gulf partners have chosen, uh, in the absence of an international framework for uh, supporting the Syrian opposition at that time, um, have been selective in the types of groups that they've chosen to support, Um, sometimes groups that have uh, trended more to the Salafist uh, side of the equation in ways that have uh, further perpetuated the the civil war and not enabled uh, greater cohesion amongst the Syrian opposition. So I think there's a risk of kind of setting off in motion some second and third order effects and and a kind of scattered approach to stabilizing the area if if we simply hand off the ball to to whether it's Saudi or or other partners in the absence of a, a collective framework in which to proceed. The last word on this, not only we've been, we've been talking about ISIS, we've been talking about the military dimensions, but obviously this is taking place uh, amidst the backdrop of one of the worst refugee crises the world's ever seen. And, you know, what is the first step then to fixing that? Is, is it this stabilization? Is clearing the rubble, I suppose, so people can actually come back? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think one of the goals that um, was laid out in Secretary Tillerson's Syria policy in, in January was the return of, of refugees. Um, but how can these refugees return to an area that is not going to be stabilized? There are, of course, internally displaced people within Syria itself that are in refugee camps. Um, and then there are the refugees that are, of course, in the perimeter countries, Jordan, Iraq, Lebanon, Turkey, and, and beyond in, into Europe. 
Europe and, and what is the prospect of alleviating the pressure on our allies and partners um, and the, the potential second and third order security, political, economic effects that we have already seen set in motion um, if there's not a place for these people to, to return to. Um, so I, I do think that that is a looming question that will be further exacerbated if there isn't follow through um, on the kinetic counterterrorism piece in Syria. And that was Melissa Dalton bringing us to the end of our show for this week. So small housekeeping announcement that we'll be taking a brief break from episodes and we'll return as usual on the week of the 16th of April. Until then, do get in touch with me with any suggestions or feedback for the show. I'm at cquinn at csis.org or you can find me on Twitter. And finally, if you need to fill the podcast void next week, I want to recommend a sister podcast, Citizens in Training, a limited series produced by our Middle East program charting the United Arab Emirates' experiment in military conscription as a nation-building tool. I'll be sure to include a link to that in the show's description. That's it from me for this week. I'm Colin Quinn. Thanks for listening.